Yeah, well, welcome everybody to all of our campuses meeting throughout the Twin Cities today. Glad you made it to church. Way to go. I know it can be a hassle sometimes to get up and get, get ready for church, but I'm very proud that you made it. I also want to welcome those of you who are watching online around the country and world. Always glad to be able to have you join us as well. And it is, it really is great for me to be back. Some of you might have noticed that I've been away for a few weeks. Others of you are like, who's the new guy? <laughs> Actually, I'm the old guy, and I've been off finishing a book that'll be released next summer, but it truly is really great to be back. You know, during a time when many churches around our country and world are going through some struggles, uh, we just had our, our best year ever. We measure from June to June, and our average in-house attendance was 22,872. Online attendance, 11,600. Some of you are clapping for that. You don't need to do that, but it's just great to celebrate that sometimes. And that's a total attendance of 34,000 on average every weekend uh, from June to June last year. I think that's outstanding. Our budget last year was $34 million to run all seven campuses and do what we do. But you all gave $41 million uh, to do ministry. This is incredible. Yeah, that's, that's worth applauding. But some of you are sitting there and watching and saying, well, man, what are you going to do with that You know, seven extra? Uh, well, we are using some of that to, you know, complete our Blaine ex expansion, and that's underway over there in Blaine. Those of you who attend Blaine see that every week, but this is going to double our capacity from 850 to 1,500 seats and a new renovation of the children's space. It's really a massive project, so it'll, it'll go towards some of that. And we're going to uh, look to build a permanent uh, campus in Wyzetta, and we want to do that debt-free, completely with cash, and so some of these dollars that are coming in in excess will go, go toward ministry. But I'm just awesome, just awfully proud of this church for these kinds of numbers. But the number that we always want to celebrate that I'm, I'm so very uh, grateful for is this number. These are the number of people, 4,374 people who made a decision to follow Christ just this last year. And I want you to know how, uh, how grateful we are that those of you who made this decision to put your faith in Christ we celebrate that with you. We're not about becoming a big church. It's not about numbers for us. It's about every single person who decides to put their faith in Christ and begins a new life in him. So we're just so thankful for that. And while I was away writing, you know, Jason Strand and John Alexander have done so, so great on the weekends. They are such a gift uh, to this church. I'm also so proud of our musicians. Every week they just do such a fantastic job. Children's staff, tech people behind the scenes, our student uh, ministry leaders and volunteers. Many weekends, my wife and I, when I'm not speaking, we'll just sit out here, and we just end up in tears. Just so grateful and humbled, really, to be a part of what God is doing. So as we look to finish out the summer, and I know we have a lot of summer left, but we push toward fall, I hope that all of you will make a new commitment to attend church. Never miss. Never miss. If you're out of town watching online, Never miss, just make that commitment because God will use that in your life. And then start praying for at least one person you can invite to church or to have you join online. Just one person, God will give you that person. Open your eyes, you know, raise your antenna. They're all around us. Let's share what we've experienced with those people in our lives. But today, we continue our series, Will God Come Through? Because there are times in our lives when it seems like God isn't coming through. And it doesn't matter how spiritual you are or how much you pray. Sometimes it seems like God is completely absent. At least it does in my life. So today we're going to look at a man named Elijah. 
He's one of the major players in the Bible, but, but James 5.17 says that Elijah was a man just like us. You know, we tend to think that these biblical characters were super uh, human people, but the people of the Bible were ordinary men and women. They struggled with all the same failures and fears and stresses that you and I experience. In fact, right after Elijah had a huge victory in his life, he went into this depression, and he was so distraught, he wondered if God had abandoned him. Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever wondered that God has abandoned me? Now, several, several years ago, my wife and I were driving home from our Woodbury campus, and we decided to take some back roads to get home through a little town called Lake Elmo. But a great day at church. We were driving along when, he came, when we came to a construction zone, and the speed limit dropped from 50 to 35, but I didn't see it in time. Suddenly, there appeared in my rearview mirror a flashing blue light, and it was, a, it was not a Kmart special, I assure you. The officer pulled me over and said, did you know the speed limit is 35? And I had no idea. You know, I'm sure it was posted on signs, but they were going by way too fast for me to read. And I, I, said, I said, oh, I said, my wife and I are on our way home from church. Because, you know, we go to church. Actually, I, I didn't say those words. I thought it, but I didn't say it. But, but when she came back with a ticket of $385 uh, for going 45 to 35, I said, really? You've got to be kidding me. And as soon as I said it, I knew I shouldn't have. Now, I, I have the utmost respect for our police officers. Your jobs are nearly impossible. You deserve our highest regard it was just a stupid reaction on my part. The, the officer who pulled me over was just doing her job. But I did think that $385 was excessive. So I went to traffic court to see if maybe God would come through. <laughs> Drove over to the Washington County Courthouse. I waited for my hearing in this courtroom, this uh, big courtroom. Five minutes later, I felt somebody tap me on the shoulder, and it was a policeman who said, Pastor Bob just wanted to say hi. <laughs> so that was nice. Then about 20 other violators uh, filed into the courtroom. The judge sat high behind her bench, and she began reading down her list. I was third when she yelled, Robert Merritt. It was so embarrassing. Uh, she instructed six of us to wait outside for a prosecutor, and as soon as we stepped outside into the hallway, one of the other violators yelled, Pastor Bob, and I'm like, shh. Kid had this big, devious smile on his face. He says, what are you in for? <laughs> no kidding, I said, speeding. Shh, how about you? And we talked about, it was just kind of a minor thing that he was in for, and we talked about church and life a little bit, and then I was brought before this prosecutor, and she said, you know, 385 does seem excessive. I'm going to reduce it to 185, but, she said, you know, Mr. Merritt, I always read the officer's notes. I never knew they did that. So I always read their notes, and it says here that your attitude that day was very poor. And as soon as she said it, I thought, what an idiot I am. 
and I determined to never let that happen again. So three weeks ago when I got pulled over, I said to myself, now, I don't know what it is. It's just like once a year. And I, I said to myself, as she's walking up to my window, now, Bob, be nice. Apologize. Thank her for doing her job. Maybe God will come through. But God didn't come through. And I thought, why me? You know, why doesn't it seem like God comes through for me sometimes? Now, I know that's just a trivial, trivial example. Truth is, God has nothing to do with my speeding tickets, and I just need to slow down a bit. But what about the times when I'm afraid or hurting? What about when tragedy comes my way or comes your way and out of nowhere claims the life of someone we love? Will God come through when we need him the most? And so that brings us to Elijah during the time of Elijah. The northern kingdom of Israel had experienced 19 consecutive evil kings over a period of 200 years. Not 19 ineffective kings. 19 evil kings over 200 years, and King Ahab was the absolute worst. This was the king during Elijah's time. The Bible says that Ahab was so evil. He led the Israelites away from worshiping God. He used prostitution, promoted prostitution as a form of weird worship, and even allowed the killing of children as a sacrifice to these false gods. This was a very dark time in the history of our world. And in 1 Kings 16, it says this, Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than all the kings before him. He set up an altar for, for Baal in the temple and also made an Asherah pole that did more to provoke the Lord than all the kings before him. Baal, by the way, was thought to be the god of the rain and sun, Asherah, the goddess of the crops and trees. So God chose one man, Elijah, to confront this wicked king. God didn't raise up an army. Instead, God did what he often does. He raised up one person to make a difference. And by the way, God may want to do that with all of you. I hope he does. You may be a business leader who God chooses to take a stand for integrity in your business, and you might feel very alone in doing that, but I hope you'll stand up. You might be a parent who God raises up to confront a group of other parents whose behavior is less than moral. I hope you'll stand. You might be a student here today who God chooses to take a stand for sobriety and sexual purity at your high school or college, and you will feel very alone in that. But I hope you'll have the courage to be God's person, be God's young person, and take a stand. But God often chooses one person, one parent, one leader or student to take a stand. And I'm just praying that all of you will have the courage to do that when God nudges you to do so. So look what Elijah says. This one guy stands up to this evil king in 17.1. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, Elijah says, hint, hint, Ahab, who you no longer serve, by the way, I still serve him. There will neither be dew nor rain for three years except at my word. This, this was a direct challenge to Ahab's worship of Baal, the god of, the god of rain, and to Asherah, the god of crops. It was a confrontation to Ahab's leadership. And by the way, Elijah's been led by God to confront this evil king. He's just following God's order. He's being obedient. So you would think 
that everything would turn out hunky-dory for Elijah. But instead, God leads him into a time of isolation and loneliness, and he has to wonder, God, why me? I've just been obedient. I did what you asked. Why don't you come through? And the next verse says, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan River. Why does he need to hide? Because Ahab is now going to try to kill him. By the word, this word, Kareth, is Hebrew, and it means to be cut off or to be cut down like you'd cut down a tree. And it's, this, it's, it's as if God is saying, Elijah, I'm going to allow you to be cut off or cut down so that I can teach you things about my protection and provision that you can't learn any other way. I'm gonna lead you into a season of isolation and aloneness. And some of you are in there right now. So that you will learn dependence on me as your sole source of strength and provision. See, a lot of times, you know, people think if they've done everything right, you know, they've, they've been obedient only to wind up in a ravine where they feel cut off and alone. And they wonder, God, why? You know, where are you in this? Oftentimes, God is right there. He's right there in the ravine where you feel cut off and God is doing something in you so that he can do a greater work through you. Some of you right now are saying, Bob, that's me. I am in a ravine. I feel cut off. I'm broken down. I feel deep pain. And by the way, if you're not in a ravine right now, you will be someday. It's, it's just bound to happen. Sometimes, I'm telling you, sometimes God wants to teach you things about himself and about his provision that you would never learn unless you went through a season of isolation and loss. God sometimes wants to develop something deeper in you so that later on he can do something amazing through you. Several years ago, I drove into a cemetery and I met a young Christian couple who were waiting there for me with a few family and a few friends. I drove into the cemetery and this young mom had been pregnant with twin girls. But a routine checkup a week before delivery showed, showed only one heartbeat. And they entered the deepest, darkest ravine of their life. Imagine walking up to the graveside. She was holding one beautiful daughter who was just kicking and cooing in her arms while their other daughter lay lifeless in a tiny casket on the ground in front of them. And there's no explanation for that. There's no way to make that right. Only a promise that their daughter is fully alive and fully complete in heaven. But here they were in the Kareth Ravine, cut off and broken, wondering why God didn't come through. I don't know why certain things happen or don't happen, but I do know that even in our darkest valley, God has not abandoned us. 
and he can use the isolation and pain to do something so deep within us that, that he can eventually do something very profound through us. And some of you are in the Kareth Ravine right now. And you've lost something. Or something's been broken or taken away. Maybe you're in a season of doubt or depression. I believe, I believe this to the core of my being that God does some of his best work in ravines where he will meet you there and love you and heal you and develop something in you that you never had before. And as I look at the life of Elijah, I see three ways that God uses ravines real quickly. The first one is just total dependence on God. So a few verses later, God says, Elijah, you will drink from the brook in this ravine, and I have ordered ravens to feed you there. So he went to the ravine, and ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook that God had provided. Elijah has no provisions. He has no plan. There's no people. And what God wants to teach him is total dependence, that in the darkest valley, God can be trusted to come through. Again, some of you have lost jobs, perhaps, or savings, things that brought you security. Some of you maybe have lost a son or daughter or friend or maybe your health. What'll get you through that? The ravens brought him food in the morning and evening because sometimes, sometimes, the only way to discover that God is enough is when God is all you have. Sometime you will find yourself in a place of such desperation. It happens to all of us. And sometimes the only way to discover that God is enough is when God is all you have because miracles still happen today. Prayers still get answered. God still comes through. But sometimes you don't learn that until God is all you have. There's nothing like ravines and ravens to teach us total dependence on God. 15 years ago, my dad died. He was 71, and suddenly my mom was in a, a deep ravine um, because her mate of over 50 years was just suddenly gone. Uh, the first six years were really, really hard on my mom. But then a raven flew into the ravine, whose name was Bud, and nobody saw it coming. There were other birds that flew in and tried to sweep my mom off her feet, but thankfully she was able to beat them all away. But one day I was, I was in church, I was actually sitting in church, wasn't speaking, and I saw my 78-year-old mother snuggling up to this guy like they were a couple of teenagers, and I thought, what the heck? What is going on? And it turns out my mom had found a man friend, as she called him, and I did not like it one bit. And then I actually saw them holding hands. It was shocking to me. And then two weeks later, we kids, we five kids, got an email from my mother, and it said, Bud and I are getting married next Friday. Hope you can make it. If you can't, we're going to get married anyway. And I'm like, what are you doing, my mother? 
Nobody saw it coming. My mom didn't even see it coming, but she found that when you're in a ravine, God can be trusted, and you'll often send a raven, and that raven will say, this bud's for you. <laughs> yeah, you don't even know if you should clap or not, because I know, I don't know. My mom and Bud had eight great years together, and he's, he was a great guy. He passed away last summer, and now my mom is back in the ravine. But she's trusting that God will meet her there. And she learned from the former ravine that God can be trusted and that he'll come through. The second way that God uses ravines is enough for the day. This is so important for us to, to learn, to hear. I don't have this mastered, but how many of us are worried about something, you know, four weeks from now? Four months from now? Maybe four years from now? Like starting school or leaving home or a massive project at work. You know what Jesus said about worry? He said, do not worry about tomorrow. It's not a suggestion. It's in command form. Do not worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is able to carry you through. But it's for one day at a time. Elijah's alone in the ravine. He drinks from the brook. He receives food from the raven. But then one day the brook dried up. I mean, his only source of life dried up. And maybe for you it's an income or a job or a relationship, and it just dried up, and you feel insecure. But God's going to teach him, and he's going to teach us about dependence and trust that we would never learn if the brook just kept flowing. God told him to go to the region of Zarephath, and there God said, you'll find a widow who will take care of you and her son. And so he goes, he finds this, this widow in Zarephath, but all she has left is enough flour and oil to make bread for one more meal. And Elijah asks her for help. I want you to see what this widow says to him. She says, all I have <laughs> is some flour in a jar, a little oil in a jug for one last meal, and then my son and I are gonna die. Elijah said, look, go home. First make a loaf of bread for me, yourself, and your son, for this is what the Lord God has said. The jar of flour and the jar of oil will not run dry until the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah said. So there was food, notice this, every day. Every day for Elijah the woman and her son, the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry. God tells us in his word over and over that he will supply all of our needs according to his riches, that we can trust him. But sometimes we don't learn that about God until we have nothing left but God. Verse 16 says there was enough food for every day, just enough for each day. God didn't give him two days' worth of food or a week's worth of food or a month's worth of food. He gave them enough for each day day. This is so important because some of you are in a season right now where you're alone or afraid. Maybe somebody walked out on you or broke trust with you, and it's all you can do just to get out of bed in the morning. Maybe you lost something. 
and you're afraid for the future, but guess what? God delivers enough for the day. Maybe you don't have much, but God says, I will provide enough for today. Maybe you feel weak, but God says, I'll give you enough strength for today. Maybe you feel alone, but God says, I will be with you today. I may not bring you more than you need, but I'll bring you what you need for each day. Ravines aren't fun. They're places of isolation and, and scarcity, but it's where God can teach us total dependence and enough for the day. So gang, we need to stop worrying about what might happen next month or next year. All we have to do is get through this day and then the day after, day after that because God provides enough for every day. Third way that God uses ravines is to raise dead things. God provides enough for the day, but then tragedy strikes in this story. The widow's son dies mysteriously and she doesn't know what to do. But because Elijah saw God do miracles in the ravine by providing food and water, and because Elijah saw God multiply the flour and oil in this widow's house, Elijah began to believe, you know what? I think God can do anything. And so he carried the boy to an upper room, and it's kind of a weird story, but it says he stretched himself out on the boy three times. Three times Elijah does this and cried to the Lord, oh Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him, and he comes back to life. It's the first time, only time in the Bible this happens. Elijah prays three times. Why three times? Who knows? You know, I think sometimes God wants to see how far we will take our faith. How many of us, including me, will pray one time, we'll send a Hail Mary, and we think, well, nothing happened, so forget about it. Sometimes God wants us to persist and demonstrate, you know, persistent faith. So this past week, I've been praying every single morning and every evening for one of our newest youth leaders. His name is Carson Frutiger. He's just this humble, kind, spirited young man. He's 26 years old. Two weeks ago, he got this weird infection in his body, and he's just hanging on at the Mayo Clinic. And I've been praying every single morning and night, God, I've been praying four words, God, raise him up. Raise him up. This infection has an 80% mortality rate, and 10 days ago, he was just crashing. His kidneys failed, his heart was failing, so they opened him up. They put him on life support. And every morning and every evening, I've been praying, God, raise him up. Save his life. God can do it. God can heal people. God can save people. God can raise dying things to life. God can raise up dying marriages. God can raise up dying faith. God can raise up dying dreams. 
the very morning I was writing these words, and my mother just texted me, so I lost my text I was going to read to you. But I'll find it here real quick. Okay. The very morning I was writing these uh, words, I got a text from Carson's dad. And when I opened the text, I just, I thought it was going to be bad news. I thought he didn't make it. Last night, they took Carson off paralysis meds. He responded well to their neurological exam, squeezing their hands and opening his eyes when asked his name. After that, they placed him back under sedation. He continues to improve ever so slowly. We are so thankful for all those who care for him and for the prayers of those that love him. We appreciate all the support from the Eagle Brook family. God is good. God is good all the time. Bruce. God, raise him up. And if he makes it, his family will learn things about God's provision and God's goodness that'll change their lives forever. Anything dying in your life that you need God to raise up. One of the books I read this summer, Moving Mountains by John Eldridge. John and Stacy have a summer home in Colorado where John does most of his writing. Six years ago, a wildfire destroyed 342 homes and was headed for a direct hit on the Eldridge home. So they called their friends, prayers went up, and theirs was the only home on that mountain range that was spared, miraculously. And in his book, John writes these words. He says, the land was stripped bare. When I took walks in that dead world, my shoes and socks were black with ash. So I stopped taking those walks. I'd had enough of death and destruction. He says, the following summer, I returned to the hills, but it seemed way too much to hope that spring would bring a different picture. But when I crested the hill above our house, I was stopped in my tracks by what I saw. Wildflowers were blooming everywhere. Happy little lavender asters, absurdly tall and joyful sunflowers, blood-red Indian paintbrush, clusters of purple in greater abundance than I've ever seen before. Deep-rooted yuccas were shooting up with vigor. The wild grasses had grown waist-high, swaying like a green sea in the light breezes. Someone had washed the land with such color and life. It looked like a Van Gogh painting. And when I read those words, I wrote in the margin of John's book, I wrote these words, and it's so true, there's no growth without a fire. Some of you are in a fire, you're in a ravine, you're wondering why you're there, but there's no growth. Without a fire, I wish it was different. You know, I wish there wasn't heartbreak. I wish there wasn't sickness, infertility, miscarriage, or divorce, but there is. Fires and ravines are hard. And while you're going through one, you can feel hopeless. But gang, there's no growth without a fire. 
And when the smoke clears and the spring rains bring, you know, they fall on our hurting souls, we will see that God was there after all. And he'll begin to fill our lives with things we never knew. We never knew were available like tender shoots of God's mercy, lush grasses of God's provision. Deeper roots of faith are replacing a shallow faith and a colorful field of hope in the God who brings dying things back to life. Some of you are in a ravine. You feel cut off. But maybe God is doing something in you that you'd never learn any other way. That God is faithful. That he's dependable. And he will come through. You know, some of you have had something dry up in your life. You had hopes. It didn't happen. And so you might feel insecure in that. You might feel like, is God going to come through? But God will give you enough for the day. He will. He's a good God. He knows you. He loves you. Some of you may have something that's dying in your life. God can do a miracle. He can raise that relationship back to life. He can raise your marriage back to life. Your children, your family, your friendships. God is a God of miracles. And he answers prayer. And so I just want to close out and pray over all of our campus. Just stay seated where you are. Just let's close in prayer and ask for God's help. Father, thank you so much that you do love us the way you do, that there is, after a fire, there's new growth that we never knew was possible. We would never learn it unless we went through this fire, this ravine. So God, I just pray right now for those of us who are in a ravine that you will do your work. The ravens will come. We'll see your provision. The brook will flow. And God, we will learn things about your faithfulness, that we can depend on you even when we feel like you're not there. God, some of us have had something dry up and we're insecure. Maybe we've lost some income or something happened that we just feel lost. God, I pray that we will trust you. You'll give us enough for the day. You've never failed us, never once. You never will. God, for some of us, something is dying or something has died. God, will you raise, will you raise that up to new life? You can do it. So Father, thank you for your mercy, your tenderness. Thank you for this amazing church and those watching online. God, thank you for them. We ask that you bless us now as we conclude our day. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been great to be with all of you. God bless you.